Our speaker today, uh, Professor Mario Biagioli of Harvard, works at the frontier of the humanities and science. He's in the history of science department. He has a PhD uh, from Berkeley in the history of science. He's taught at UCLA, Stanford, and in Paris. But he has done a number of things besides history of science. He started out in computer science. He tells me in the olden days when it was all mainframes. And then he did an MFA in museum studies and the history of photography and was a working photographer for a number of years. Now the work that he does combines humanities approaches and a science topic. He has written a book, Galileo's Instruments of Credit, Telescopes, Images, Secrecy, and has also written Galileo Courtier, which has been translated into German, Portuguese, and Greek. His edited books include Scientific Authorship, Credit and Intellectual Property in Science, The Science Studies Reader, Artisans and Instruments, 1300 to 1800, The Scientific Revolution as Narrative, and Located Knowledges, Intersections Between Cultural Gender and Science Studies. His current project is Scientists' Names and Scientific Claims, a book on the history of authorship, intellectual property, and credit in science. He speaks to us today on Galileo and Kepler. Welcome, Professor Piaggioli. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the, for the nice introduction. Also, bringing up uh, my former computer skills that I will show you have completely disappeared since if I manage to open these two files that I, I'm going to show you, it's going to be uh, a struck of luck. So um, what uh, I want uh, to, ah, hold on. Yes, can, can it, yeah, it's better, right? Um, so I am going to uh, talk about um, a, a correspondence between um, Kepler and uh, Galileo in uh, 1610, at the time, uh, right around the time that Galileo discovered, made his uh, telescopic uh, discoveries. So there are a number of things that I want to do uh, uh, by looking at this uh, correspondence and the books that Galileo and Kepler published in this, uh, in this year. So the first one is to make sense of a, a historical uh, puzzle. That is, um, while Kepler, as I uh, will try to show, um, relied extensively on witnessing to corroborate uh, Galileo's discoveries and his corroboration of Galileo's discoveries. And he actually developed some pretty interesting and uh, innovative uh, uh, pr uh, protocols of uh, scientific witnessing in the process. Uh, Galileo, in those same years, and also in the rest of his career, ignored systematically the use of witnessing. More specifically, he never used witnessing to corroborate the truth of his claims, but he used witnessing in a very different way, that is, to uh, corroborate his priority. So he wouldn't use people to say, you know, John Doe, has uh, observed with me the satellites of Jupiter, and he agrees that they exist. 
he would say, John Doe was with me March the 7th when I discovered the satellites of Jupiter. Okay? So the act of witnessing would be about the time of the discovery, not the content. And instead, Kepler does exactly the opposite. Kepler is not concerned with priority, but is concerned with uh, witnessing as a way to corroborate uh, a claim, I mean, an epistemological claim. Now, uh, the reason why I got interested in this is because, first of all, I, I, was, I was struck by this uh, uh, stark difference between Kepler and Galileo. And this is a difference that emerges precisely as Kepler is trying to help out Galileo uh, silencing the skeptics, those people who were skeptics about his discovery. So this is a correspondence between the two about what's the best way to convince people that uh, specifically uh, Jupiter has four satellites as uh, claimed uh, uh, by, uh, by Galileo. So this is the first thing. The second thing that, uh, that I find interesting about this, uh, uh, this material is that witnessing has become a very important uh, uh, topic in the history of early modern science, especially people who work uh, on uh, the history of the experimental sciences, uh, say, Boyle experiments on the air pump and so on. They have stressed, and actually they have built an entire argument around the fact that without witnessing by uh, socially credible people, facts cannot be stabilized. That is, uh, it's only if you manage to line up, uh, 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 for instance, in the case of Boyle, somebody who is an aristocrat and people of similar status. So it's only by adding social credibility to a claim that you can make it stick. Okay. So at this point, uh, I would say that this, uh, this, uh, uh, this school, this, this uh, trend in history of science that is informed by the sociology of scientific knowledge, basically equates witnessing by appropriate people as the, the way in which you actually produce the truth. Okay. So um, the, uh, Gal both Galileo and Kepler's behavior contradict uh, directly the, 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 you know, the, uh, the assumptions of uh, these, uh, these people. But they contradict it in a very interesting way. So uh, just to give you, not to give out the line, but um, one thing that I will show, or I, I hope to show, is that there is a direct relationship between the legal system in which you operate and how you treat uh, witnessing in science. That is, there is a good correlation between what Boyle did and English common law, and there is a pretty good correlation between what Kepler did uh, with, uh, uh, in terms of witnessing in astronomy and the protocols of uh, witnessing in uh, uh, inquisitorial and uh, canon law in the German uh, lands in, in the late 16th and early 17th century. Galileo, it's a harder example, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll show that uh, at least I have a, a hypothesis about it. So those are the two things. Um, and then uh, the talk is mostly about Kepler because although I, I'm in love with Galileo, on this topic, actually, Kepler is much, much more interesting. Uh, and, and I also think uh, substantially weirder. And you'll see, you'll see what I mean 
as, as, as I go along. So there is a, quite a bit of uh, facts, and I'll try to um, plow through as, as fast as possible and concentrate on the argument. So um, in 1609, uh, Kepler um, believed to have observed a, the transit of Mercury. That is, Mercury going over, going across the, the solar disk. It turns out that what uh, he observed actually was a sunspot, but he thought that it was, uh, was Mercury. So uh, Kepler calculated uh, what he, he thought to be uh, the, the transit of Mercury, and he started observing uh, systematically before and after the date, just in case he had missed it a little bit. So uh, unfortunately, uh, he, you know, the, the, this, the, this event was supposed to happen on May the 29th, 1607. But the weather is lousy, he can't observe anything. Eventually, on the 28th, the clouds uh, uh, disappear, and he, Kepler rushed to the attic of his house in Prague, where he had noticed that uh, the cracks in between the, you know, not the shingles, but you know, the, the roof, would act, would act as a pinhole camera, so that he could basically uh, get a picture of the sun without uh, the telescope, which did not exist at the time, and also without blinding himself. So uh, he rushes to the attic, and uh, once there, he projected the solar disk on a piece of paper and observed, quote, a small spot the, si the size of a small fly on the lower left side of the piece of paper. After moving the piece of paper around and trying out different cracks to make sure that this picture was not an artifact produced by the crack, he also talks about uh, spider webs, so he wants to make sure that he's getting uh, the right picture. He becomes convinced that he's really observing something real. This is not an artifact. So at this point, he immediately dashes out of the house to round up witnesses. So the first was uh, Martin uh, Bakajek the rector of the University of Prague, who also happened to be Kepler's uh, landlord. So, and he wrote on uh, uh, Kepler uh, <laughs> report, I, Master Martin Bakajek, was present to this observation and vowed that this is what happened, end of quote. Kepler then left the house, ran to the court to see if he could use the, the emperor as witness. The emperor is busy, uh, <laughs> he keeps going, uh, and he goes to the Jesuit, to the Jesuit, uh, uh, which is actually pretty interesting because uh, Kepler is a Protestant, but he, he basically he would take any any witness, you know, independent <laughs> of. Um, the Jesuit is praying, so he cannot get him. <laughs> so he continues, and eventually he, la he lands in the shop of uh, Jost uh, Burgi, the court uh, clockmaker. He gets there, Burgi is not in. But uh, because the sun and the spot are on their way out, uh, Kepler uh, grabs his two assistants, uh, assistants slash servants, and closes all the shop's doors and windows, except for a pinhole uh, aperture about one-tenth of an inch, from which they were able to observe at about 14 feet from the window uh, the, the same image with the same, you know, and, and the spot uh, in the same location that he had observed in, uh, at his house. Um, and like uh, Martin Bakajek, the rector uh, of the university, uh, one of Burgi's assistant was asked to autograph Kepler's report, which he did in German, quote, Heinrich Stolle, 
junior clockmaker journeyman my hand. Now, uh, the interesting thing is that, again, the sociologists tell us that witnessing is uh, effective only when it comes from a person of high social status, but here you see that uh, Kepler basically is willing to grab people across the, uh, the dominational divides and across uh, uh, social uh, class. Um, this is, I think, uh, uh, it matches Roman canon law pr as practiced in the empire at the time that stated, quote, adequate witnesses are those who are without evil repute <clears throat> and who otherwise are unchallengeable for, for any legal ground. So the standard of appropriate witnessing was not necessarily high social status, but just basically you know, a clean legal record. Okay. Now, the typographic features of Kepler's text, because what Kepler did is that he reprinted this story in his book on the transit of, uh, you know, of uh, uh, Mercury. So uh, the way he rendered this is interesting. So this is, uh, uh, so you see, throughout the text, he used these quotation marks to mark the section that is his report about the observation. And then he switches to the, the interpretation of the event, right? So this is the, uh, what he wrote at the time. So after the section above, he, he writes down, that's the, the, the signature quote of uh, Martin Bakajek. So he basically renders the, he tries to simulate the, the signature in the text and in the case of, uh, in the case of, oops, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? No. Thank you. So I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what you'll see. Um, in the case of Bakaj, uh, uh, okay, here, so here it talks about uh, Justus Burgi. Uh, so this is the signature of Stolle that is printed in uh, Gothic. And in the other page that I closed, um, Kepler says that the text he had written and that uh, um, Stolle had signed was in German because Stolle could not understand Latin. And that is then translated into Latin by Kepler. Okay. So this is not just uh, uh, the use of witnessing. He's really trying to be, if you want, as legalistic as possible. He introduces the text and then the signature underneath the part that the person has witnessed. In the, in the case of Stolle, the text was written in German and he says that he, Kepler has translated in, uh, in, um, in Latin and the signature is printed using a different font. So this is not just saying, you know, uh, John Doe um, witnessed what I did. Now, um, it's also worth seeing that in the description of uh, Bakajek and Stolle's uh, identity, it's not just the signature. Kepler writes down who these people are. Uh, he says, the witness is an assistant to Jost Burgi, the maker of automata, who was a spectator. And then, you know, elsewhere he says that uh, Bakajek was director of the university. Now, 
Again, I read this as a specific reference to Roman canon law that says that when uh, you have a witness, you don't need to put down just the name. You need to put down some information so that the police can track down the witness. Okay. So this is not just identity. This is a way to put down the address of the witness. Now, um, Kepler's use of witnessing became much fancier uh, in a couple of years later when he wrote a book in which he tried to support Galileo's discoveries, Galileo's telescopic discoveries. So um, in, uh, in the summer of 1610, uh, Kepler managed finally to observe the satellites of Jupiter. It was only at the time that he managed to get a telescope that was good enough to see them. And uh, <coughs> he, um, so what he does uh, is this. He starts the text by saying that um, there, is, there has been no correspondence between him and Galileo, and therefore that these uh, observations that he's presenting cannot, have not been tampered with. So this is the text. Prague is my witness that these observations have not been sent to Galileo. Actually, it is for this reason that I have not written to him recently, despite the fact that I owe him a letter. And those to whom I have communicated these observations in genetic term have not been able to copy anything from my papers kept at my house. Similarly, Galileo has not been able to send them his observations because only a few days have passed. You can therefore rest reassured that there has been no communication. So when it comes to observing, Kepler reports the provenance, ownership, and uh, technical features of the instrument he is using, and as well as all sorts of slight modification in the apparatus, and then he, man he names the people who are witnessing with him. Now, uh, he doesn't relate, uh, then he does an interesting thing. He doesn't relate uh, the credibility of the witnesses to who they are, but actually he relates you know, the credibility to how much they would lose if they lied. So uh, Ursinus, Ursinus, so again, the issue is not that says, look, so-and-so is, uh, is a baron, so you know, he would lose face as a baron by lying. He's saying, no, you don't need to be a baron to, uh, uh, to, to, to damage your reputation by lying, especially if you are young. So Ursinus is the youngest of the observers and the least pre prestigious. Nobody really knew who this Ursinus was. But that does not mean that uh, he has less to lose than a more senior scholar like Thomas Saget, another of the witnesses. Quote, an Englishman already well known for his books and correspondence with famous men, who therefore cares dearly about the reputation of his name. End of quote. According to Kepler, because Ursinus is, quote, passionate about astronomy, loves the discipline, and has decided to practice it as a specialist, it would not even cross his mind to ruin right at the beginning the credibility necessary to a future astronomer with a false testimony. So that is, basically, uh, he's, doing, he's doing like actuarial you know, uh, calculus of how much reputation you know, Orsinus would lose you know, over his uh, uh, lifetime. Now, the, the interesting thing is how the witnessing happens. So, this is Kepler. Each of us had to draw in silence, which, with chalk, 
on the wall anything we had observed without making it visible to the others. After that, we would look together and simultaneously at each other's pictures to check our agreement. So uh, Kepler then maps the consensus. So, so basically, they, they observe silently, they make sketches, and they share the sketches after the, the observation is done. Kepler then maps both the consensus and the disagreement of these various observations, often specifying which observation people had conducted by after being told what they could expect and what observations instead were conducted without being told what to expect. Okay. Now, Kepler's protocol resembles Roman canon law practices. I say resemble because you know, it, it's really not you know, a one-to-one -one, uh, relationship. Um, because contrary to common, um, common law countries like England, where trials took place in an open court, trials in Roman canon law were based on evidence produced by interrogating witnesses in private and by then forwarding the transcripts to a closed court. This was not just to maintain the power of the judiciary, but to prevent what early modern jurists saw as unlawful storytelling. Defendants were often not told what crime they were accused of prior of being interrogated so that they would not be able to pre prepare self-exculpating uh, narratives. Also, when more than one defendant was imprisoned awaiting trial, quote, they should be kept apart from one another to the extent that jail cells are available in order that they may not plot false testimony with one another or discuss how they can explain away their deed. So this is from the Constitution, the Carolina Constitution um, the, for Penal Law. Defending, uh, denying defendants information about the crime was also seen as a way to prevent them from confessing things that they had not committed. Or in Kepler's case, the things that they had not observed. Uh, jurists thought that were, were defendants to know the circumstances of the crime that they were accused of, they might cobble up these fragments uh, into a confession just to get themselves out of the hands of the torturer, which is something that uh, resonates, uh, has some resonance for current events. So under you know, desperate circumstances, the accused might just grab the few fragments he or she has heard about the crime and put together a, a confession just to uh, end the torture. So this is what I mean uh, to go back to the, uh, the specificity of uh, the relationship between witnessing practices and, and, and legal practices. In England, where witnessing is public and there is a jury, uh, a jury uh, setting, Natural philosophers use public witnessing to uh, adjudicate uh, their claims. In Germany, where Kepler works, instead, each witnessing is kept separate and then delivered to uh, the judge, in this case, to the, the reader. Now, um, Kepler is, uh, de is developing all these things, these new techniques, largely because Galileo is not providing him with uh, testimonials. Okay. This is a letter to, to Kepler, to Galileo. Quote, although I continue to have no doubts, it nevertheless pains me to remain so long without testimonials by others to convince the remaining skeptics. Uh, 
I'm asking you, Galileo, to produce other testimonials as soon as you can. From the letters you have sent to various people, I have learned that you do not lack witnesses. But I cannot cite anyone except you to defend the credibility of my letter, that is a letter that he has already written to, en to endorse Galileo, um, to support you. The authority of the observations rests solely on you. Now, here, uh, what Kepler continues to uh, articulate in the rest is that, look, um, you have witnesses. I know you have witnesses. Why don't you make them uh, publicly available? And then he says, look, you think that this is a philosophical argument. It's not. Because you have written in a fashion, meaning you have written the book, uh, Galileo's book, in which he uh, described his uh, telescopic discovery, as, if you want, Popular Science was a book that was really aimed at uh, a wide range of audiences. Basically, he says, the issue here is not your interpretation of the events, is rather, quote, whether you consciously lied to the world, end of quote. Okay. So, um, now, Kepler would come across so far as somebody who really believes in uh, witnessing and that uh, uh, is eager to push this uh, style on uh, Galileo. But it turns out that he actually hates it. And he says um, that his book has been criticized, I mean Kepler's book, uh, by people who uh, claim that my arguments are cheap and aimed at pleasing the masses, like those used in a tribunal to respond to questions of fact. Okay. So what Kepler, what begins to emerge is that um, it's not that Galileo needs to produce witnesses because otherwise other scientists will not believe him. It's more that because he has opted for a popular publication. Now he has to play by the rules of, say, quote, the masses. Okay? So neither Galileo nor Kepler actually believe in the need for witnessing. But if you play, if you write a popular book, you have to provide uh, 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 witnesses. Now, um, not only that, in this quote that I just read, where he says, like, uh, like, like those arguments used in a tribunal to respond to questions of fact, Kepler goes on to discuss that uh, facts to him are actually something like rhetoric. Because facts in uh, tribunals are being tossed around and they're mixed up with uh, all sorts of rhetorical arguments. So actually facts are, if you want, something like... Uh, uh, you know, one-liners. So the facts are part of juridical rhetoric. They're not part of uh, um, philosophy. Now, um, why, does, why does, therefore, uh, Kepler believe in uh, Galileo's claims? And why does he think that it's not necessary to, um, uh, to provide witnessing? Now, here things get uh, particularly, um, particularly weird. So Kepler says that even when he didn't have any testimonials about Galileo's discoveries, and even well before he had a telescope to reproduce these claims, he believed in Galileo's claim because of, quote, 
more secret reasons. And these more secret reasons has to do with the philosophical um, implication and background of uh, uh, Galileo's claim. So he says, um, I have produced a book with observations basically just to shut people up because I was sure of your claim well uh, before. Now, what are these uh, claims? I mean, these, uh, these uh, secret philosophical reasons. Now, as he discusses the secret reasons for endorsing uh, Galileo's claim, Kepler makes an intriguing statement. He finds Galileo sincere because his book contains things, quote, that are both credible and incredible. Now, he expands on this by saying that claims that are too good to be true are likely to be untrue. Uh, which means that in order to appear to be true, a claim needs to be simultaneously, to, it seems to uh, simultaneously confirm and subvert the reader's expectation. Uh, I'll show that actually this belief has to do not with the law, but with uh, Kepler's theology. Okay, so Kepler's, and you know, uh, commitment to the use of witnesses has to do with... Uh, basically what you need to do to keep the masses happy. But when you talk to uh, professionals, you adopt completely different standards of evidence and, uh, and argument. And these standards are, I think, related to how basically God created uh, the world. Now, in the, in the narratio, in this book that Kepler wrote to support Galileo, he, made, he says that liars need to have excellent memory. Now, memory is a crucial skill for those who, because they are making things up, they need to ensure that each step of their story is construed to fit the previous one. So if you are a liar, you need to keep your lie in check. You need to make sure that each piece of the lie fits, otherwise you are going to give yourself away. So uh, liars also have a tendency to find an answer to any question that may be posed to them. By contrast, it is the sign of sincerity to simply say, I don't know, as well as to report phenomena that are difficult to explain. So, quote, why, I ask, would one willfully complicate matters by inventing such things one would then despair to explain? This is referring to Galileo. So Galileo's claims are so incredible that they must be true, because if you wanted to lie, you could have come up with a much simpler lie. Galileo, Kepler argues, reported the surprising variation of the brightness of Jupiter's satellites while falling to explain that. Galileo at one point says, the satellites are incredibly uh, bright and I don't know why that's the case. It is precisely the fact that Galileo is struggling to explain what he has reported and also what Kepler could not understand that convinces Kepler that uh, this was a real phenomenon. Okay. It's real because it's hard to believe. But not everything that it's hard to believe is, of course, true. Now, similarly, Galileo's claim that the satellite's periods around Jupiter are remarkably fast, especially compared to the fact that Jupiter takes 12 years to go around the sun, is such a surprising statement that, in Kepler's eye, this has the ring of truth. Even more so after reading Galileo's own skepticism about being able to determine the exact periods. You know, Galileo, you know, Galileo at one point says, the satellites move extremely fast, 
and I really am not sure that I will ever be able to detect, uh, to calculate their periods. So if one wanted to lie, according to uh, Kepler, one could have, quote, organized those apparitions, imagining, imagining them on the basis of precise orbits and periods, as if drawing them from ephemerides, quote, end of quote. And if he really wanted to make up new planets, Kepler argued, why not make them of make the, their number infinitely large and place them around an infinitely large number of stars. So as, quote, to corroborate Cardinal Cusanus, Bruno, and others, and to say things made credible by their authority. And if he did not like the fixed stars, why should have he invented them around Jupiter while neglecting Saturn, Mars, and Venus? Why would have he imagined four rather than only one? as uh, only the moon goes around the Earth, or six, as there are six planets around the sun. Okay. So to be credible, new claims need to defy the most mechanical of expectations. That is, they need to be a little bit incredible. Now, Kepler's notion of the mark of truth, if you want, applies to arguments that humans develop about nature, but hinges, I think, and this is hypothetical still, hinges on uh, ontological uh, um, positions linked to um, uh, Kepler's uh, view of uh, God's role in the, in the universe. Deriving for God's infinite power, the workings of nature always exceed our knowledge and expectations. So philosophical narratives that acknowledge gaps in the philosopher understanding of nature confirm that and therefore they derive a ring of truth from it. So, God can make everything he wants and knows everything. Okay? So because we are humans, we cannot understand everything. So by, them, by, telling, by telling our readers that we don't understand anything, we come across as truthful. Because if we said that we understand everything, we are either blasphemous or we're just lying. Okay. Now, Unlike good philosophers who know and make visible their limitations, liars invent seamless narratives. This is another thing where he talks about the smoothness of the liar's narratives. But even when, uh, when most intricate and skillful, the liar's fabrications uh, display the smoothness of artifacts, a smoothness that gives them away as uh, just a simulacra. Gaps or statements like I don't know in philosophical arguments are the equivalent of, say, the accidental chisel scratch or you know, the, the weird brush stroke uh, in an artwork that actually make the artwork look uh, real as opposed to seamless as if machine-made. Okay. This, uh, this may explain why Kepler is not embarrassed to present partially diverging observational report in the narratio, and I will uh, uh, this is the quote. If, dear reader, you notice some discrepancy, or if, as I believe, you will realize that sometimes I have seen fewer satellites than Galileo, this should not produce any confusion concerning the fact itself. These, in fact, are my first experiments with such an observation. The sky has often been cloudy. The presence of the moon has bothered us, because if you have a very bright moon, it's very hard to observe the satellites of Jupiter, the instrument was not very good, not very easy to use. Uh, the, the telescope mount was fixed, and it was hard to track these uh, uh, satellites. So 
basically, while people who have stressed the necessity of witnessing in science, they always talk about how crucial it is to have full consensus, like everybody has observed the same thing. Kepler seems to say that if everybody agrees that they observed the same thing, they're making it up. Because things are so complicated, you, there must be discrepancy in the observation. So, uh, because if you don't have discrepancy in the observation, it would mean that somebody has tampered with uh, the, the witnesses. So the difference in observations does not mean, it means differences in perception, or it simply means that there are so many things going on at the same time that certain people pick certain things rather than others. Now, things get even weirder. Um, now, there is a, a connection, I believe, between Kepler's notion of the mark of truth as something that is partially credible and partially incredible with, uh, uh, the, with how he sees the marks of a, a, a good philosophical argument. That is, he seems to say that um, claims that are predicted by philosophical arguments are true, but only when they are predicted partially. Okay? So, uh, to give you an example, um, at one point, Kepler says that Kepler, years before, had discovered that what he took to be a pretty good relations between um, the uh, planetary orbits and the, the five platonic solids, if you nest them one into each other, right? So he says, look, my discovery of this relation was, um, is, it both was based on what the ancient had said about the properties of the five platonic solids, but also modified it, okay? So it cannot be a perfect prediction. This is the interesting thing about, if you think about kind of textbook philosophy of science, you have the theory, and then you have the observation, and the observation is supposed to match the theory. Instead, Kepler is saying that if the theory is this philosophical argument, the philosophical argument is uh, confirmed by partially fitting evidence. And the evidence uh, is particularly truthful when it matches the theory only partially, right? Which is, uh, which is something that I think that people in the philosophy department would not be too happy to, uh, to hear. So, for instance, the example would be uh, that the Galileo's discoveries are particularly truthful because they somewhat match what Bruno had predicted, but not completely. Okay? Because Bruno had predicted all sorts of uh, additional uh, planets. Instead, Galileo is only finding some and denying the existence of them in other places where, uh, where Bruno would have put them. Okay? So he says you know, to Galileo, you correct such a doctrine, meaning Bruno's prediction, while also showing that he generally told the truth. Okay. Now, because I am taking up a lot of time, I'll give you the punchline. To me, this, this uh, argument based on uh, evidence partially fitting the prediction and the prediction being confirmed, because this is a loop, right? You know, it's, Partially fitting prediction confirms the argument that predicted it and vice versa. This to me is a prophecy. This is not a theory. 
but this is, is, it has the structure of a prophecy. Prophecy in theological literature are supposed to be narratives that uh, point to something that will happen in the future, but cannot match it to the, to the, you know, to the dot. Because if they match it to the dot, they're no prophecies. They're supposed to be good enough to be recognized as having predicted, but cannot predict it specifically. Okay. So my guess is that, uh, so Kepler is a lawyer when he deals with normal people, and he's a theologian uh, who believes in prophecies when he talks to astronomers, not to theologians, because actually he doesn't talk to theologians because they don't like him. All right, so that's the part about Kepler. So the first part is that his uses of witnessing when he deals with the hoi polois is based on Roman canon law. And then he has all these other alternative real discourse that has nothing to do with the law, but actually has to do more with theology. Now we come to Galileo. And um, all right, we're doing OK. Um, so Galileo is uh, quite a different character. Um, when Kepler asked Galileo for these testimonials, the letter that I wrote you before, uh, Galileo replied, quote, you dearest Kepler, ask me for more witnesses. I will mention the Grand Duke of Tuscany, who a few months ago observed the Medician stars with me at Pisa and generously rewarded me. I have been called back to my fatherland with a stipend of 1,000 scudi a year, with the title of philosopher and mathematician of his highness, with no duties, but plenty of free time. So after several more lines detailing the wonderful deal that he had got, all the various perks that he had got in Florence, Galileo has mentioned a, briefly a second witness that is a, the, the, the brother of the, actually the cousin of the, of the Grand Duke. Now, uh, he also mentions that he has plenty of other witnesses, but he mentioned none. Even when he mentions the Grand Duke as a witness, he doesn't say, for instance, on what date uh, he observed uh, uh, this or, or, you know, or what place. He doesn't, you know, in the, in the book, um, in the Sidereus Nuncius, the book that he published on this observation, he doesn't mention anybody. He doesn't even mention where he observed uh, the satellites. Of, uh, of Jupiter. Now, but if Galileo ignores, in fact, Kepler's request for testimonial, he does not ignore the letter. So he replies it, as I've shown, except that most of the details do not concern the circumstances of the replication of his observation at the Medici court, but rather what the Grand Duke had done to reward him. Okay. This may be a, a case of uh, sheer gloating, because at the time Kepler was not being paid by the emperor. Uh, and in any case, would have, been, would have made very little money. Uh, but it could also signal Galileo's tendency to equate rewards with testimonials. Okay? Basically, uh, there is, I think, a very clear pattern. Galileo believes that he doesn't have to provide testimonials because he has been rewarded. And it's not that because he has been rewarded, he doesn't need testimonials, which is part of the story. But it's also that rewards equate uh, you know, commitment. Okay, so equate, uh, you know, equate uh, um, uh, testimony. No, so in uh, um, his, um, um, this stance uh, matches very well what uh, 
Galileo did elsewhere. So as I mentioned, in the Nuncius, the Sidereus Nuncius, there are no witnesses. And uh, the same pattern continues in later books. In the uh, book on the sunspot, there is nobody mentioned. And later on, uh, as far as I can tell, I've not found one witness in Galileo's books. A dramatically different picture emerges when we look at Galileo's handling of priority claims. So things that have to do with credit, not with truth. For example, in a 1606 book in which he described a, a compass, a kind of a sliding rule, okay, he mentions that he's printing this book, quote, to invoke the testimony of the printing press. That is the testimony that he was the first one to come up with. Uh, uh, and then he continues. I do not lack the testimony of princes, another great gentleman who, in the last eight years, have seen and learned the use of these instruments from me. So contrary to his last, the later practice of uh, leaving witnesses uh, nameless, he then lists uh, the Prince of Alsace, the Archduke Ferdinand of Austria, the Landgrave of Hesse, and the Duke of Mantua. Uh, as witnesses, but to the date, not to the claim. Okay. Um, later on, he gets into a priority dispute on these instruments, and he produces a book that is basically one testimonial after another, all of them about dates. Now, what can we make of the remarkable different uses of witnessing by Kepler and uh, Galileo? So if Kepler called witnesses to testify to observations but not to philosophical points because those were a part of a different discourse, Galileo invoked witnesses to testify to the date on which observations and objects were produced but not to the fact that they were true or uh, functioning. So unlike, unlike Galileo, instead, Kepler does not demonstrate any interest in priority claims. So receipts as testimonials. Um, a second look at Galileo's uh, letter to Kepler where he says, well, you asked for testimonial, I'll just tell you uh, the Grand Duke and he gave me a great deal to, to come back to, um, to Florence. Now, the Grand Duke, uh, the sociologist of science would simply say, well, this makes perfect sense. The Grand Duke is somebody extremely uh, credible, so Galileo is using uh, the name of the Grand Duke to buttress his claim. And actually, this is a claim that I made too, 15 years ago. Uh, now I'm, uh, I'm uh, backtracking. So what I think uh, is, uh, is uh, instead happening is that Galileo is stressing what the Grand Duke did in response to his uh, uh, observations. Now, my guess, because um, I need to, uh, I think I'm taking up more time than I thought, um, what is basically happening is that Galileo uh, up to this point, had been a teacher of mathematics, mostly uh, applied mathematics, and has been an instrument maker, as shown by his uh, uh, compass. So if you want, it's easier to think of Galileo as an artisan. And the kind of legal customs that artisans were accustomed to, such as patents. So for instance, when Galileo presented the telescope to the Venetian Senate, he did not make any argument whatsoever about how the telescope worked. He presented a, a working uh, example of the telescope, uh, 
the senators walked all the way up to the St. Mark's Tower and observed from up there, and they noticed that they could spot ships from w very far away, which immediately they immediately understood as a military advantage. So Galileo did not describe his instruments, did not describe the science or the optics behind his instruments. He just said, here is this instrument. Do you like it? It's yours. Now reward me. Okay. So this is how Galileo operated in this phase of his life. So if you want, he belonged to you know, an economy that was not really an economy of knowledge, but it was an economy of things. Do you see this? Uh, do you recognize the advantages? Fine. By the way, uh, the, the Venetian senators could not care the less about how it worked. Because what, what it matters is that it did work. And they could assess that. Um, I've argued that, in a sense, the satellites of Jupiter, in the eyes of the Medici, were not so much an astronomical claim as much as they were the Medician stars. So the argument, I think, can be translated to his astronomical discoveries. Galileo goes there with the telescope to the Grand Duke. And he says, Grand Duke, can you see those four things up there? Those are the Medician stars. Now reward me. So the letter to Kepler can be read in two completely different ways. One can be, seen, can be read as Kepler, uh, Galileo found the, most credible, the, the socially most credible witness he could find and delivered the news to Kepler. Or he basically said, I don't need witnessing because my job is not to go after witnesses. It just is to produce products and to sell them. And what happens is that I get paid. And, and that's the end of the story as far as uh, Galileo is uh, concerned. So this is uh, patent law wasn't really articulated at this time. So I can't say that, well, in the same way that, uh, that uh, uh, Kepler drew from Roman canon law and uh, Inquisition practices, uh, Galileo simply drew from patent law. I can't quite say that, but that's what I would, uh, would like to say. So the absence of witnessing is, uh, um, is a reflection that Galileo, even when he made what were subsequently seen as claims about nature, and I'm sure that to some extent that's also what he thought he was making, but he presented them not as claims about nature, but as monuments to the Medici dynasty. And if they are presented as objects as opposed to claims, then they operate in an economy where these things are rewarded rather than witnessed. Or if you want, the witnessing is still there, but it becomes part of the entertainment. Thank you very much.
often communicated not so much as not so much laws or theorems, but other discoveries. He communicated them in cipher. Now f there is very little literature on the use of ciphers in mathematics and science, but actually Galileo reliance on cipher apparently comes from it was a standard practice among mathematicians. That is, uh, again, Kepler is, is unusual. Most mathematicians would treat, uh, um, would treat their equations as, if you want, trade secrets. Uh, the example would be um, Tartaglia. So Tartaglia got into a huge uh, fight with uh, uh, Girolamo Cardano, apparently because uh, Cardano had asked him to disclose a, I don't know exactly, exactly what, but you know, it was some kind of uh, interesting equation that Tartaglia had come up with. But then, after the disclosure, he had not do, you know, he had not done what uh, he was supposed to do, and which led to all this back and forth. So, but in this case, you see that Tartaglia, who was a, a very much of a practical mathematician, he thought that his uh, work in mathematics was, uh, uh, you know, was a trade secret. So he would publish what he wanted to publish, but uh, he kept to himself what, uh, uh, you know, what, what he chose. Um, so th it, it looks like, uh, in, or the same thing with uh, the use of, of ciphers continue, continues later on you know, after Galileo, like Huygens is another good example of people who, who use uh, um, ciphers. But there are two things about disclosure that are quite different. In certain cases, there are people who simply don't want to disclose, okay? Uh, but then there is a more interesting case, that is people who want to disclose but don't want to be scooped in the act of disclosing. For instance, uh, Huygens at one point came up with, uh, uh, I, think, uh, I think it was the cycloid, so the fact that, you know, if you put certain kind of cycloidal cheeks on a, on a pendulum, you get a, a isochronic pendulum, right? So he comes up and he immediately applies for a patent, okay? Then sends a letter to the Royal Society, to the Philosophical Transactions, that is the journal, right? Uh, without saying that he has made an important discovery, it's only when he receives the letter back that he tells them what it is. So basically, at least he has a letter from, so if they scoop him, he has a letter from them, he says, you guys, I wrote you this and you wrote back this. And then I send you my discovery and you stole it. So the use of cipher is very much for the same thing. What you do is that you send out a cipher. So technically, you make your discovery public. That's what Galileo did with the, with the shape of Saturn and the, and the phases of Venus, right? So what can happen is that somebody can break the code and steal your discovery. But if they don't do that, you send out a lot of letters with a cipher and make sure that everybody knows and that people start you know, talking to each other. Oh, Galileo sent us a cipher, but we don't know what it is about. And then you solve the cipher after you know that everybody knows that you have sent out the letter. So in a sense, so the cipher is not to withhold in absolute terms. It's just to create, to make sure that 
you are not going, your, your, you know, your discovery is not, to be, is not going to be stolen as you try to make it public. So it would be like, you know, in modern terms, you send out a grant proposal and somebody, you know, scoops you, you know, the, the reviewer of the grant proposal is going to plagiarize you. So this is, this is in a sense, the, the danger that Galileo and Huygens are trying to avoid. Okay. So, just long answer, but uh, so use, the use of cipher is a typical mathematician practice and uh, often it's not just for secrecy itself, but if you want, it's really like encryption. You want to send a message, but you don't want it to be you know, snatched by those that you don't want uh, um, to see it. So, so in that sense, it's really encryption. Yes? Um, so the question is about uh, the, what patents you know, were at this point and, and who granted them. So, the, of course, different countries, different cities have different practices, but there are a couple of things that cut across the, the, the various cases. One is that patents are not rights. Today, patents are intellectual property rights. Instead, they were called privileges. So they were gifts. You know, inventors were not entitled to patents. It was only if the, either the prince, prince meaning anybody from a bishop to a king, or a city in the case of Venice. Uh, it was up to them to grant it. Okay. Uh, the, the, the often patents were either, they were, if not against the guild's practices, usually they were complementary. There is some uh, interesting economic history that has been done on this. And so patents were more like for technology transfer, at least early on. So you give patents to people who come to a place with a certain know-how. After the know-how is established, the guilds take it over. So in a sense, in the past, patent inventors and, and guild members were seen as you know, uh, opponents. Now it's more like the guilds were there to manage anything having to do with the technological production in a certain place. Patents were to introduce the new. And, 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 you know, and, then, and that, then the technology could be taken over by the guilds. Um, the, the early modern patent law is dramatically different from the present one, not only because it's, um, it's, it, it used to be a gift and instead now it's a right, one thing that is, that is pertinent to my argument is that in early modern patent law, there, there was no disclosure requirement. That's crucial for my argument in the sense that today, in order to get a patent, you know, the, you, know, you, you, know you need to make sure that the, first the subject matter has to match, so you, it needs to be something that is patentable, but then you have to make it, you have to describe it well, and well means that you have to describe it in sufficient, uh, sufficient detail so that a third person may reproduce it. Because the argument is that once the patent expires, people might go, you know, might use the, the, this, uh, the patent specification to build that, that, invent, that machine or process. So this is crucial because now that the patent specification is part of the right in the sense that the argument is that we are not going to give people monopolies unless they give us something back. 
So the inventor give to the, gives to the public the description of the invention, and we, the state, grants them a temporary monopoly, and everybody wins. This is the patent bargain, right? In, in the early modern period, instead, what matters is utility. So the prince can not care less about how, about, you know, why this machine does what it does or, or how it looks. What matters is because there is no bargain, there is no public. You know, there is no public that needs to know, okay? But the other thing is that you come in, so for instance, uh, John of uh, Speer, the guy who got the, uh, the first patent for the printing press in Venice, comes into Venice, he doesn't claim to be the inventor of the printing press, he just say, I have the printing press with me. Do you want me to put it, you know, do you want me to operate it in Venice? Y yes, let me show you, it works. Okay, give me the privilege. So it's, it's, uh, it, it, the early patterns are really based on a very local notion of utility, but no disclosure. So that, you know, to go back to Galileo, Galileo shows them the telescope. Do you see the utility of this thing? Yes, reward me. So that, th those are the main logical differences. They're really quite striking, you know, between the past and, and, you know, and, the, and the present. But the, the issue about the non-disclosure is, is what's crucial to my argument because you know, now that move wouldn't, wouldn't work because now he would have to disclose. I mean, Galileo would have to disclose to get a patent. But then he didn't. Well, um, the tension, I'm not, I, I would say my guess is no because the patrons most of the time are not happy to be invoked as witnesses because that puts them, um, puts their honor at stake. Uh, and that's another interesting example of how different Kepler's use of testimonies from, Bo from Boyles. So Boyles, when he cites, so Boyles, precisely because he argues that you need to have high power witnesses, but then high power witnesses have a very fragile honor that can be insulted you know, very easily, right? So it could turn very quickly into a dual situation where eventually you end up saying you are lying. And if you, to if you tell a noble you are lying, that has all sorts of consequences, right? So Boyle argues, not only Boyle, but a lot of the people who did experimental philosophy says, look, the nice thing about experimental philosophy is that you can always blame something else. You can say, that you know, the instrument wasn't that good or the assistant screwed up. So you can invoke uh, accidents to save the honor of the witness. Instead, what Kepler is doing is that the accidents are actually what makes the claim true. Instead, in Boyle, the accidents are invoked to simply shield the honors of the witness in case of failure. So it's really, uh, the other thing that I've noticed is that in this discussion of witnessing, because the emphasis has been on the social function of witnessing, very little attention has been put on the fact that the things that people witness are completely different. But for instance, one thing is to go to the Royal Society, somebody has an air pump, and you put whatever you want in the, in the receiver of the air pump, you take out the air, and you observe what it is. That's an event that you can reproduce any time. Witnessing in a case, you know, in a criminal case, is completely different. 
you know, ba basically it's a witnessing that is, you know, to reconstruct what happened in the past, which is a completely different can of worms than witnessing something that is happening there pop now, which is also completely different from witnessing the transit of, uh, of mercury across the sun, that it happens now, and then if you're lucky, you know, who knows when it's going to happen the next time, right? So, for instance, the fact that Kepler rushes is because he has to rush. He can't simply say, okay, you know, two weeks from now, we'll assemble, everybody will do a nice experiment. So the emphasis on the sociology of witnessing has erased, you know, the temporal, the temporal dimension of, you know, of, uh, you know, of witnessing and what people do when they are confronted with that. So, for instance, Kepler came up with this, you know, separate witnesses, making their drawings, and so on, right? Uh, Galileo in the Sidereus Nuncius, you realize why he doesn't need witnesses, because what he does is that he plots, he makes little drawings, night after night, you know, Jupiter in the middle, and then this asterisk that mark the stars, right? And he shows that it's a movie. That, you know, if you look at Jupiter once, one night, you might think, okay, you know, there is Jupiter, and then there are those weird uh, shiny things around it. I don't need to believe that these are satellites. You would be right. But if you see 45 pictures of this and you start seeing that actually these things, if you keep track of them, you see that they move so that there is a narrative. Then it's the narrative that makes the point, right? And again, in a sense, what Galileo is saying, look, I don't need witnessing because I'm giving you a movie. You know, and the movie, you know, how do you take, how do you criticize this movie? Unless you say that I'm making it up every night. Even if I'm off one night, still that doesn't kill the argument because the argument is based on the fact that these things move in a regular manner and they come back. Because that's, that's, that's how he makes his argument. Right? So sometimes if you look at how these claims are described, you understand whether or not you need witnessing because sometimes you don't. So, but again, the sociological approach of which I was a proponent, I'm not, I'm not criticizing other colleagues, I'm including myself in that, in that, in that tribe, in a, in a sense it bleached the, the specificity of these cases. And it's not just the specificity, meaning, yes, as a historian, we always know that everything is different from everything else. These are, you know, depending on the kind of phenomena that you're observing, you know, you, you might, you know, choose different forms of, you know, truth-making. Yes? Well, so, uh, oh yes, so the, the question was exactly um, what, Galilei, what Kepler was trying to accomplish by um, articulating this uh, witnessing, uh, this method of witnessing with the individual uh, witnesses, uh, you know, making uh, drawings of what they observed. So whether this was, uh, he was trying to achieve, you know, to produce a, an objective claim or what was? Persuasive, per persuasive claim. So um, what I can guess is this. Here, there are, he's talking to multiple audiences because in the correspondence with, with Galileo, it's clear that he sees the standard readers and the astronomers as completely different audiences. 
and he actually blames Galileo for not having written a philosophical book which would have been read by the astronomers. And instead, basically, you know, he basically say, Galileo, you have been stupid. Now you are in trouble because you have made a popular book and now you have to play according to the game, you know, that kind of game. So that game, Galileo Kepler believes that can be won only by abiding to the discourse about facts that one finds in the courts. So the division keeping the witnesses separate is a way to address that issue. Basically you can say, look, I have used the same standards that I used in court, so you guys should be happy. So it's a completely ad hominem argument, okay, I think. Uh, about the, the objectivity, the objectivity, uh, I'm not sure I know how to apply the term to what Kepler is doing because it seems to me that uh, his, his framework, like you know, what he would take to be true, is something that, as I mentioned, is, 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 is really is something that is closer to a prophecy. It's more actually closer to a, an event that confirms a prophecy rather than to what we would consider a straightforward observation. So I'm not sure I, I know how to translate objectivity to, to, to Kepler. Yes. I think we're just about time, and I would like to thank you very much for your Thank you.